morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Good morning. I'm jealous of Peter's sermon prep time. Uh, before we begin, before we get to our passage, um, there was something I was hoping we could do last week when we were 
the, the sermon was more on um, the Holy Spirit coming to empower us for ministry. Um, and that's recognize a couple people that have served in ministry for a long time that are both stepping out. And it turned out they were both gone last week, so it'll be a little easier this week. But um, Jake Thompson, he is, uh, he, he's been the director of Sunday School, the kids program, for 12 years. 12? And he, he's taking a break. Um, so we're just very thankful for Jake and his leadership. And just think of how many kids have, have gone through uh, Sunday School over 12 years and, and the impact of hearing God's truth each week uh, at, at their level. So we're very thankful that Jake has has overseen that. Um, and Lauren, which I don't think they're here, um, but which she probably prefers anyways. But uh, she's led women's prayer. Uh, she doesn't even know how long. Uh, I think it's at least six or seven years, though. And she also is taking a break. Um, so like Jake, she's been incredibly faithful. Uh, to lead and simply do what's in front of her, to encourage the women of grace to to grow in their ability to pray and, and to be a source of encouragement as well. So um, when you have a chance, thank Jake, thank Lauren. Um, I have a gift for you after, so come and find me. But um, yeah, thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this church body and the privilege it is to shepherd and and this morning to preach. There is so much here. I'm breezing over lots. And yet we could spend weeks here basking in in the glory of this passage. But what we are going to cover, I ask that you would illuminate this text through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to us that we can actually understand your word and actually be empowered to obey it. So I ask that you apply these truths to our hearts, that we may grow, that we may bear more fruit, that we would have greater faith for the week ahead. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, this is part two, continuing from last week, we looked at the events of Pentecost at the, the first section of, of chapter two. And the, the Holy Spirit comes to empower the disciples for ministry. And it's a, a significant mark in redemption that this is now ushering in the new covenant through the Holy Spirit. And there were 3,000 others. It says they were God-fearing Jews who were there witnessing this seeing fire come, the sound of wind, the disciples speaking in different languages that they can understand. And so this crowd, these 3,000, are left asking a question. What does this mean? What is going on here? And so Peter stands up and gives the first Christian sermon in order to explain what's happening at Pentecost. And his sermon is built around three Old Testament Quotations that he's picking up and explaining. And what he's, what he's doing is first explaining the, the coming of the Holy Spirit and why that's significant. And then he connects the coming of the Holy Spirit to Jesus and his identity. He 
he, he uses the, the quote uh, ending in verse 21 with this charge. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter takes that and then connects it to who this Lord is. It's Jesus. And he has titles, the Christ and the Lord. And that's the next two sections. So he explains the, the Holy Spirit and the meaning of that. And he moves right to Jesus being Christ, the Messiah and Lord in his ascension. And so that's what we'll look at this morning as well. And then up front, there's a lot here. Um, before Carrie and I and our family moved back uh, from Portland, we were at a church for a short time and they were going through Acts. And the pastor spent five or six weeks on Peter's sermon. <laughs> so I get one. So there's going to be some things that we're just going to skim over. And it's just the way it has to be. But I, I wanted to focus especially on the ascension. As, as Matt mentioned, the songs are focused on that. And it's an area that we tend to overlook. We, we think of his life and his death and his resurrection. And then oftentimes we skip to his return and not dwell on what the significance of the ascension is. So I, I want to spend some time doing that this morning. I also mentioned last week that, that before Jesus ascended, he promised the Holy Spirit would come. And he told the disciples, it's to your benefit that I go away. So last week was the benefits of the Holy Spirit coming. This week, we could say, why is it good that Jesus went away? What are the benefits of him returning to the Father? So even though I wish I had five or six weeks, we're going we're gonna to do it in one. So let's look at the first section, the Holy Spirit coming to all people. And when you look, the events happen, Peter stands up immediately and gives a sermon. You might wonder, how is he doing that? Where is he getting these Old Testament passages from? Is he just pulling things and cherry picking them? Or maybe you ask, isn't this the Peter that was clueless most of Jesus' earthly ministry? It is. But a lot has happened since the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead, shows himself to the apostles, and now they see the rest of his ministry with fresh eyes, with a new perspective. And then Jesus goes on to explain what's the significance of this. If you want a good description, uh, you can read Luke 24. It's, it's an account of Jesus speaking to the disciples and explaining, I am who the whole Old Testament is talking about. I am the meaning. I, everything makes sense when you see it through the lens of me, Jesus, not me. So Peter isn't grabbing random psalms and, psalms and trying to put it into his narrative. The psalms fit into the narrative of scripture. And Peter's connecting the dots in the way that he learned from Christ. So not only did Christ resurrect and, and give one teaching opportunity, he spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching and ministering to the apostles, preparing them for this moment and going forward. Now, it's true that, Holy, that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter in a unique way, that he was able to author First and Second Peter, and he was a significant influence with Mark, Mark's gospel. But we have those. We have the same perspective that Peter had. 
And we have the Holy Spirit so we can understand what Peter wrote and what the other disciples and apostles wrote. So it's not that Peter is just riffing off the top of his head. He's been taught how to put scripture together and explain other events. And that's what he's doing here. So look at what's happening here. These people are are, are witnessing something at Pentecost that's extraordinary. And they want to know, what is all this about? And Peter immediately goes to Joel, the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2. And he quotes a portion of it here in Acts. And Joel had prophesied that there would be a day when the, the Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. It had worked through various people in different ways, but it was rare and it was not a permanent dwelling. Some were empowered by the spirit for specific times or tasks. You think of during the building of the tabernacle, Bezalel and some others were, had the power of the Holy Spirit to construct the tabernacle and the holy vessels. Others like Samson and Saul were empowered with the Holy Spirit for a time, but then it was removed. But what was promised by Joel was different. It, was, it would be a permanent dwelling by the Holy Spirit. And it, it wasn't for a few people, for distinct purposes. It was going to be poured out on all of God's people, men, women, old, young, even servants. And this pouring out would cause people to prophesy, to attest to the works of God. And now Peter is saying this this prophecy has been fulfilled at Pentecost. And when we looked last week, one of the features of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost was ushering in the new, new covenant. So that dwelling of the Holy Spirit is now permanent. And what's not as obvious in in Peter's immediate sermon, but will develop through the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, is that this new covenant will not just be for Jewish men, Jewish women, Jewish children, but for all people, including Gentiles, including us. And the requirement to be brought into the new covenant is the same for everyone, regardless of ethnicity or gender or background. The gospel will go out to all people. And the requirement is the same. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter works his way through Joel's prophecy. And then he's urging them to call on the name of the Lord. And when you and I hear this, call on the name of the Lord. You might think Jesus immediately. But remember, he is preaching to devout Jews. They're familiar with the Old Testament. Who might they have in mind? They might be thinking of Yahweh. But as we move along in this story of redemption, the focus is now going to become Jesus as Lord. And this is where Peter moves next. So we go to the promised Christ, this Messiah who has come. And Peter cuts right to the chase. Who is this Lord? It's Jesus. He says in verse 22, 
Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter's making the connection between the Lord that Joel promised to call upon and clarifying that that's Jesus. This is the Jesus that the Jews knew about. They saw his life and his mighty works that, that accompanied him. And so now Peter is attesting to those mighty works. And he begins building the case that Jesus is the Messiah promised by the Old Testament. So Peter walks through the wondrous works Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And this was apparently common knowledge for the audience, that they were familiar with this. And then he leans in hard and tells the crowd that they killed Jesus. Can you imagine you're sitting there, Peter points the finger right at you, looks in your eye and says, you killed Jesus. But that's what we've done. You killed Jesus. Our sin is high treason against a holy God. And the penalty for our sin is death. Either ours or Jesus. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. Your rebellion killed Jesus. And yet, Peter also shows it was according to God's plan and salvation. God's plan was that Jesus would be killed and handed over to lawless men. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. We can't wrestle with how exactly that works right now. But it's clear, both are true. The Bible presents both. Here they are. We need to be able to rest in that. How exactly they work, we can try and articulate that. But the Bible puts them both together. That we have responsibility. We have killed the Lord. And yet God used that to bring glory out of it in order that he would accomplish redemption. Peter goes on. He mentions that he and the disciples witnessed the resurrection. They saw him. They spoke with him. They ate with him. Others touched his wounds. He really rose from the grave and he really remained in a human body. It wasn't a ghost or some kind of illusion. And it wasn't only that the disciples witnessed the resurrection. Now, others in the Old Testament did mighty works. A few even rose from the dead. But Peter is saying that this Jesus, this Jesus is different. Peter uses Psalm 16 to show that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's not only making the case that Jesus rose from the dead and he's one of many that have risen from the dead. He's saying he's unique because he's the one that was prophesied about. He's quoting David to show that David understood that there would be someone who would not see corruption. Peter's showing that 
Jesus is the Christ, which means Messiah. It's the one who is promised. Even though Psalm 16 might look like David is writing about himself, Peter is clear to explain that this isn't David. We know that David was a king and he was great. He was a godly man who feared the Lord, but he still died. And he stayed dead. His body is in a tomb. We know that, Peter says. And so David is writing about somebody else. Somebody who will not see corruption. And not only will he not see corruption, but Peter's going to go on and explain that this is someone who will sit on David's throne forever. A future son of David. David looked ahead to this day. And Peter uses this idea to further show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. When David was king of Israel, the Lord spoke to him through the prophet Nathan and promised him a special son. Second Samuel 7 talks about this. Chapter 7, verse 12 says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, you being David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And now someone could look at that and think it could be Solomon. There's some things here that describe Solomon. It's literally his son. He built the temple, the house for the Lord's name. He sat on a throne. But Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. There must be another son from the line of David. And now Peter is is connecting the dots between Jesus as Messiah and Jesus as son of David. The son who will be king and sit on the throne forever. Which brings us to our next section, where we'll take a closer look at the ascension and our ascended Lord. So to set the, the table a little bit, let's flip back a page in your Bible to chapter 1. We, we talked about this a little bit last week as well, but Jesus is giving final instructions. He's promising the Holy Spirit. He said, remain in, in Jerusalem, and then you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. He's, he's commissioning them. And right after that, in verse 9, Luke writes, And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that's about all we get for the ascension, for the account of the ascension. The rest of the gospel writers spend chapters on the crucifixion and the resurrection. And yet we get a few verses on the ascension. And maybe that's why we tend to not think about the ascension and the significance of it. But Peter's going to work through why it's significant. It's also maybe tempting, we think of the ascension and we're aware that Jesus will return. We might think he's just, what is he doing in between these two times? And the reality is he's, he's doing a lot, and that's what we're going to look at. If it's good that he went to heaven, what are the benefits? What is he, he doing in his ascension that benefits us. We're going to look at four 
four benefits of him returning to the Father. His exaltation, the fact that he's at the Father's right hand, that he poured out the Holy Spirit, and that he's ruling as Lord. So the first one, exaltation. One of the things that happened at the resurrection was that there was a change. It's not in Christ's nature. He remains the same in his nature, both God and man. But he went from a humbled state in his incarnation to an exalted and glorified state after he conquered sin and death. What Jesus accomplished in his humiliation, he is now able to take his rightful place in glory. His sinless life, his perfect righteousness that we, we sung about in, before the throne, he has accomplished that. Now he is able to go before the Father. We see this in another well-known passage in Philippians 2. And so I'm just going to read it, but notice the change that, that happens even in Paul's language. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was a humbled servant. He lowered himself. He was obedient to the point of death. Doesn't mean that he wasn't all powerful or had the right to rule as king. But he didn't take his place on the throne until his exaltation. Jesus carried out his work of going to the cross And then the resurrection begins this exaltation. And it continues through the ascension, as Peter notes. He is exalted now. He's no longer a suffering servant. He's no longer a man of sorrows. He's an exalted king. Theologian Herman Bavinck, he said this, he described the exaltation this way. After his resurrection and his ascension, Christ has the highest place beside God in the whole universe. So where did he go? Where did he go in his ascension? He went to sit at the Father's right hand, which is our next benefit that he went away. Right hand is mentioned three times here in our passage, and it's all referring to Jesus. Verse 25, verse 33, we'll look at verse 34. And where does he go? He's going to the heavenly throne room. And he sits down on a throne at the right hand of the Father. The right hand is used a number of times in the Bible. And it is referred to as the place next to God the Father. And that's where Jesus is now seated. There's a number of places that describes this. Hebrews 1 is is just one example. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, even though he sat down, it doesn't mean he's resting and he's done with all of his work. One of the benefits of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is that he grants us access to the throne room. Jesus is our high priest. We're able to go into 
the throne room, the Holy of Holies, because we have a high priest who grants us access. Again, in, in Hebrews, it talks a lot about this. Hebrews 8.1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So in the Old Testament, the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice. Now Jesus is our greater high priest. And he grants us access. We don't belong there. But he grants us access anyways. It's kind of like the exclusive club you see in a movie or TV show. It's got velvet rope and the bouncers out front. There's a long line of people wanting to get into this place. Everyone wants to get in, but only the coolest and the wealthiest can actually get in. So you're not rich. You're not famous. And it's even worse because you tried to break in last week and steal something. So now you're on the do not admit at any time list. And yet you have a friend that can get you in the club anytime he wants. So you walk up to the front door, you cut in line, you walk right in by your friend. You have no business being there. Apart from your friend, you could never get in. But with your friend, the right friend, no one can keep you from entering. What a friend we have in Jesus. He grants us access to places that we have no business being otherwise. So we can actually go before the Father. And not only that we can be in his presence, we can ask him things and even expect and urge that he will do them. Not because of our authority, but because we can ask in the authority of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. When we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. It's not just a little nice add-on to close our prayers out and spiritualize it. We're actually pleading with God to hear our prayers and answer them. And what business do we have even dare asking something to a holy God? But because in the name of Jesus, he is making intercession for us. We now have access to God through the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ. There's one other little thought on Jesus as our high priest. He remains a man. When he came as a baby, he took on a second nature. Fully God taking on flesh, he's fully man. He was the God-man. And that didn't change with the ascension. He remains the God-man, possessing two natures. Jesus' body didn't see corruption because he rose from the dead. I don't pretend to know how that works completely. But he is forever, both God and man, even in the throne room. The third benefit of the ascension is that Jesus is the one that pours out the Holy Spirit. So we've already seen and talked quite a bit about how the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was promised by Joel. But who poured it out? Verse 33 says that by ascending to the Father, Jesus is the one who is able to now pour out the Holy Spirit. We benefit from Jesus leaving because the Holy Spirit is able to be poured out and come. So we get the benefits of the Holy Spirit coming in part because Jesus ascended. And the Spirit is the one who leads us in truth, who convicts us of sin, who empowers us for ministry. And he empowers our prayers. 
So we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray to the Father, who we now have access to. But we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are present and involved in something like prayer. We get access through Jesus. The Father is the one who is able to grant our prayers. And the Spirit helps us to pray in our weakness. We don't know how to pray. And yet the Spirit is the one to intercede. We have three people helping our prayers to be effective. Thank goodness it's not by our flowery words or gritting our teeth, but by the power of God that allows and enables us to ask great things in prayer. So pray. In the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, pray boldly. The last benefit is found in verse 34. It's that Jesus rules as Lord. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, rules as Lord. I think it's easy to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over the church and over Christians. But Psalm 110, the passage that Peter's quoting, says that Jesus also rules over his enemies. He rules over everything. In other words, he's king and he rules the kingdom. He told people this in his earthly ministry. He talked about the kingdom quite a bit. From the very beginning of his preaching, he talked about the kingdom. Mark 1 says this, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is here. And when Jesus ascended to the throne, the king is now on his throne. Being Lord means he has authority. He has authority over the whole earth. And this is something he was given after the resurrection and in his ascension. The father gave him authority to rule the world. Jesus is the king. And he has a kingdom. Notice he mentions that the believe in the gospel. But he's talking about the kingdom. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died for our sins. It is that. The good news is definitely that, that Christ has died for our sins. But it's also the good news of a good king who rules over a good kingdom that's better than any other kingdom in this world. I want to take us to Daniel 7 and, and describe this a little bit. So if you if you have a Bible, gone back and forth whether to go here, but sometimes we, we hear coming and we think from our perspective, coming to us. So in Daniel 7, Daniel's having all kinds of dreams and visions about what's about to happen or what will happen in the future. And in verse th- 13, of chapter 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days as was presented before him. And so again, we hear the word coming, but where is he coming? He's coming to the ancient of days, the ancient of days, meaning the father. And so this passage, this, this vision that Daniel has is, is talking about the ascension. Daniel sees with the clouds of heaven, Jesus is coming up to the father. And it goes on in verse 14 to explain what, what the significance of that is, that he's Lord. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is permanent. This will not fail. Now, one question that we have is, okay, if Jesus rules over everything now, why does it not look like that? Why can I look at headlines or look at my neighbors? I can look at myself. Doesn't feel like it's this kind of kingdom. We see division and conflict and discouragement and depression. We can wonder where where is Jesus? Where is this kingdom that he talks about? If he rules, why are things so hard? Well, the kingdom is here, but it hasn't reached its fullness yet. All of his enemies have not been put under his feet. It's a kingdom that grows from small to great over time. It's progressive. It's like a mustard seed that grows or tiny little yeast into dough. Another vision that Daniel has, he described it as a stone that grows into a mountain that fills the entire world, the whole earth. Sometimes people will use the phrase already and not yet to describe the kingdom. It's really here. Jesus really reigns, but not in its fullness that we will see one day. But take heart, Grace Church. The kingdom belongs to Christ and it's advancing. When we think of earthly kingdoms and rulers through history like Someone like Napoleon, it's, it's usually grown and advanced through force. But the kingdom of God is different. One writer describes it this way. His kingdom expands not through evolutionary forces, human wisdom, or political strategy, or military conquest. His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, comes through obedient service to Christ while proclaiming the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. The kingdom advances through obedience to the king and through telling the mighty works of the king, proclaiming forgiveness of sins, proclaiming this kingdom. And the promise of scripture is that this kingdom will continue to grow. Enemies will be put under his feet and the king will have dominion forever. Okay, so let's go back to Acts and Peter's sermon. After quoting Old Testaments and tying this together and explaining who the Lord is, the Lord is Christ, the Lord is the ascended reigning Lord. It's Jesus. Peter wraps up his sermon in verse 36. 
He says, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is Peter's main point. That the one to call on is Jesus, the Lord and Christ. And so going back to Pentecost, at the end of that passage, the crowd says, what does this mean? What's the meaning of this? Peter explains it. Now, the crowd is cut to the heart, it says. They're convicted of their role in the crucifixion of Jesus. They recognize their guilt. That's the Holy Spirit's work. We see the Holy Spirit working here to cut people to the heart. It's not Peter's rhetoric alone that cuts people to the heart. It's the Holy Spirit. And this is what's happening, which leads to a second question. Okay, we understand we're guilty, Now what shall we do? What do we do? And Peter gives them the simple command. Repent and be baptized. And Peter links it to the name of Jesus again. Just like he began his sermon imploring the crowd to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. He comes back to that again. Call on the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the promise, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So repent if you never have. Repent and believe this Lord. Call on his name and repent and believe. So now we've come full circle. It starts with the Holy Spirit coming. Now Peter is calling for the Holy Spirit to fall on these people again if they repent. And they do. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. It started with the Holy Spirit. It ends with the Holy Spirit. It started with a feast of first fruits. Now we see 3,000 souls being saved, the first fruits of the harvest that will continue until the kingdom reaches its glory. It was good that the Holy Spirit came. It was for our benefit. Incredibly, it was also to our benefit that Jesus went away. Peter helps us to see all of that is part of the plan of the triune God. So marvel at the power of the Holy Spirit. Be thankful that we have access to the throne room and live as if Jesus is king of the world. Because he is. 